I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Uh, Join me in welcoming Robert Owen and Stephen Nightingale. Well, um, despite being the author of a book on the Alhambra, my Spanish is pretty negligible, and therefore in the course of the next hour, I'm going to mangle all sorts of Spanish words. (laughs) Stephen Nightingale's Spanish, on the other hand, is pretty good, and he is the author of two novels, The Lost Coast and The Thirteenth Daughter of the Moon, as well as six books of sonnets. And now he is the author of a work of non-fiction, too. I suppose that Granada, the light of Andalusia, could be described as a travel book, because I think that is where booksellers are going to put it on the shelves, even though there is very little travel in the book, except for Stephen going up and down the hill of El Baycine. What is El Baycine and where is it? Um, It's a quarter of, one of the quarters of the city of Granada um, in southern Spain. Whereas downtown Granada is a matter of wide avenues, big shops, uh, a great cathedral, municipal buildings, Albaycine's small whitewashed houses tum- with their gardens tumble down a steep hillside down to the River Darrow. Um, for those who've been to Tunisia's city Bouside, it's a lot like that, uh, the white houses particularly. The inhabitants couldn't look over the river of Albaycin can look over the River Darrow to the Alhambra on the facing hillside. Um, In the heyday of the Muslim uh, occupation of this area, Albaycin was densely populated and it was in particular the quarter of the falconers and that's what its name comes from. Baziar is a falconer, Baycin is a kind of corruption of the word for plural of Baziar, Bazirin. This book we're talking about this evening is dedicated, really, to Albaycin and the ghostly presence of Arab culture in it. Um, it, This book has been described by the Arabist and poet Eric Ormsby in the Wall Street Journal as an exuberant and beautifully written book and as packed with information as a pomegranate is with seeds. So now, Stephen, let's start... um, what led you to emigrate to America, emigrate from America and go to Spain? Why Spain? Uh, a number of reasons, really. I, um, we, our, our daughter, Gabriela, had just been born. And uh, with new life of, in the family, of course, comes new ideas uh, and uh, a longing for experimentation and for novelty and... Uh, for uh, for an improvisation in in life, and I had a long-standing interest in Al Andalus. Without, I confess, at that point, really knowing much about it. But the idea of the convivencia, Christians, Jews, and and Muslims living together and producing extraordinary work, uh, was something that I wanted to look into. Uh, so we uprooted ourselves from the United States. Um, I. My, my wife Lucy had uh, grown up in places like the Congo and Tunisia and Mali. 
And so I, my concern was that this might be too modest an adventure for her. <laughs> but um, we dined one evening in the Albaicin, and uh, s- such is the beauty and what I would call the the authenticity of the place that we decided within 60 seconds, I would say, that we were going to move there and buy a house there. And you must have had Spanish already, otherwise you'd be lost dealing with this. Or did you learn as you went along? We had some Spanish um, after we uh, bought our Carmen. Carmen is a house with a hidden garden. We, uh, our Spanish, because we had to renovate it, we had to, our Spanish had by necessity to improve very swiftly. Our neighbors teased us that 80% of our vocabulary consisted of construction terms. <laughs> yeah. I, the, 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 the whole business of buying a house and renovating it or restoring it has almost a, a become a kind of subgenre, starting with Peter Mail a year in Provence. Uh, more closely, closer to yours is Tahir Shah's account of buying a ruined villa in Casablanca and fighting the jinn that right. were sort of haunting the place. Uh, your, your own struggle to get your place habitable sounds... Did you ever feel like giving up and despairing? You know, we, um, it, it, one could easily imagine that, but our, because of the Albaicin and because of the neighborhood, our experience was somewhat the reverse of that. That is, we arrived having a contract for our house to be ready to move into. We arrived on a rainy night with a babe, our baby in our arms and, and our wet dog walking with our luggage down through the Albaicin to find, of course, our house full of rubble, full of jackhammers and cigarette butts and, uh, and piles of brick dust. And so there we were, a homeless American family in the middle of of, uh, of a thousand-year-old neighborhood. And what we found, two things we found immediately. First of all, our neighbors, who already thought we were a bit daft, um, responded with such open-heartedness and loving-kindness uh, and goodwill. Um, literally any night, we could knock on a door at 10 or 10.30, and soon we would be at table um, with with a bottle of excellent Spanish red wine talking into the night. Um, so, and when we went out into Granada, there were cafes and Moroccan restaurants that, by, by whom we felt adopted <laughs> as a family. And so it was one of those things where what seems to be a reverse, in fact, was a blessing because we became integrated into the community and into the neighborhood uh, in a way that otherwise would have been much more difficult. Once you're settled in, um, how, were you writing this book? Were you writing other books? How good was it for your writing? You know, I, I thought that what I would do, um, because uh, the period of the convivencia was such an extraordinary period, I would thought I would write um, a novel or perhaps a trilogy of novels. But the more I read about the Albaicin and about Al-Andalus and about the history of Islamic tile work and about Garcia Lorca, the more I read, I thought, who needs fiction? <laughs> fiction, fiction cannot, this, this story has elements of such, uh, such power and such imagination and such fascination that I couldn't make up, I couldn't make up anything this good. It, 
at times it looks awful as though you have made it up. <laughs> Some of those stories, like the lead tablets or that, <laughs> that John character at the beginning of your book, that's full name. Yeah, but we've come to them, I suppose. Perhaps yeah. we should come to, in a way, the meat of the book, which isn't, you know, once we've got over mm-hmm. the rebuilding, it's about convivencia and the culture that arose from it. Right. Could you explain what convivencia was? Convivencia is a term that, that uh, and it's interesting that there's no word in English. Um, convivencia is a Spanish word. It literally means living together. And it refers to the period of almost 1800 years, uh, 800 years, uh, from 711 to 1492, um, where um, Christians and Jews and Muslims lived together and worked together, and, and sometimes under Islamic administration, sometimes under Christian administration, and produced one of the most accomplished and extraordinary cultures in European history. Um, I think I think the facts are the facts on the ground now, because of centuries of scholarship, but especially because of the last many decades of scholarship, have established that. And it's um, of course a very consequential period for the subsequent history of Europe, but it's also consequential for for our period, the period in which we live now, in which. The problems of convivencia are something that we must face every day. Yes, I mean, it's becoming, I think, potentially a problem in Granada right now. There is now a large Arab immigrant population there. Uh, there's one particular street which is full of Arab tea houses, coffee right. houses. And the calderería. That's yeah. it. Um, is it a problem? Is it perceived as a problem by the citizens of Granada? You know, I think there, there is a small, um, very conservative... Uh, sector of the the public in Granada that that is very um, anti-immigration from North Africa, just as there is in the United States, my own my own country. Um, but our experience, I think, was one of overall harmony, of a sense of sharing of the beauties and the opportunities of the of the Albaicin. Um, our friends were were Muslim and, and, uh, and Christian both. Um, and there was no, you know, this, this, we lived there during the period where the Bush administration was doing, by my estimation, horrific things in the Middle East. And I never heard a single word of criticism or anger or rage from any Muslim in Granada. Yeah. Among our many friends, not a single word. Sorry, it's reminded me. I, I was in Barcelona at the time of the Second Iraq War, and we were at the, the at a familia cathedral, and there's a rather ugly McDonald's directly opposite. <laughs> it, and there were flats above the McDonald's, and they stuck a great banner up above the McDonald's saying, "Don't eat this shit." Um, <laughs> to more serious matters, um, I suppose, less serious matters, perhaps. Uh, perhaps we could pause on some of the high points of Muslim culture it, during the convivencia. I mean, Ibn Hazm, for example. Right. This, this, this is a culture that produced great works about love, mm. um, that produced the, the most remarkable poetry in the Middle Ages, mm. um, the Arab poetry in Arabic and, and poetry in, in Hebrew as well. Uh, that made major advances in science and in mathematics and in astronomy 
and in agriculture, uh, in philosophy, in music. Really, the, you think that the whole range of human accomplishment was addressed in some profound way in the culture of the convivencia. And I, I feel, I feel, um, I, as, I, as I wrote this book, I came to feel uh, how much we are all in debt yeah. to the people that lived during that epoch. It's a very sunny picture you paint. Um, I should also add that the Chariat al-Hakim, or Goal of the Sage, or in Latin, Picatrix, one of the most sinister treatises on black magic was also a product of this <laughs> culture, full of poisons and hideous, monstrous spells. Right. Um, but, but Ibn Hazm is, is another matter. Uh, the Ring yeah. of the Dove is a wonderful book. Yeah. Nobody should leave this shop without knowing about it. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, this is, uh, Ibn Hazm was, was raised in a harem until he was uh, age 14. Um, and uh, he later wrote uh, this extraordinary treatise on love, uh, uh, The Ring Neck Dove. And, and then he wrote, he, he went on to write across a very broad range of subjects, as did many other scholars uh, in Al-Andalus. There wasn't this divide between between politics and law and philosophy and and love and poetry. You know, you could you could range freely. You could let your your work and your mind range freely across that uh, that whole landscape of human considerations. Uh, the, the Ring of the Dove is a wonderful book. It's all about different ways of falling in love. You mentioned specifically on right. chapter on falling in love while you're asleep. It's right. <laughs> A lot of it's about falling in love with slave girls and, and abasing yeah. oneself before slave girls and preferably blonde slave girls. It's <laughs> a very enchanting book, but it, mixed in with it, there's a lot of sadness because it's written after the fall of Cordova. Right. It would split up in a civil war. And the, the sort of the luxury and the culture he knew as a child and he was in a harem was busily being destroyed. But while we're on the subject of love... Perhaps you could tell us something about the Muslim Kama Sutra. Right. The 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 uh, the it, it's uh, it, it's a it's a it's a book written by a Muslim who was one of the men expelled in 1609, and the final expulsion from the Iberian Peninsula um, of uh, of Muslims, in fact, Moriscos. And yeah, Morisco is a Muslim living under. Christian administration. Um, and so this gentleman went to Tunisia, and he was both uh, very well, well read in Arabic and in Spanish. And so he wrote um, a book which is known as the Kama Sutra Español. And it, there is nothing like it in the entirety of European erotic writings in that whole period. Let me set the context here. A lot of thinking about women in the European Middle Ages went back to Aristotle. And the, the, the idea um, was that a woman is a kind of defective man who is, is incomplete and is inferior in some fundamental way and has no really physical rights nor um, should take any physical liberties in marriage. Basically, um, the physical pleasure um, as a natural and ecstatic part of of the bond of marriage 
is something that was just profoundly condemned by the church as official doctrine. So this gentleman to whom you refer, who, who, who has remained anonymous despite the efforts of historians, went and wrote a treatise that takes completely the opposite approach. He, um, he, the interest of this treatise is in, within the marriage bond, in the pleasures of women, in all their detail and prolongation and, and variety. Um, and he is full of praise for the beauties of women in their pleasures. And he goes on beyond that to, to say that, in fact, physical love can be seen as a kind of, of ecstatic prayer, that is, a kind of foretaste of paradise. And it, it is hard to imagine a treatise more out of harmony with all of the Christian teaching for the last 10 centuries. So it's an extraordinary piece. And uh, so John of the Cross comes into it, does it? Well, not not in that, not so much in, in that text. No. But what what happened, I think, with this treatise, the, the reason it came to light is a fascinating reason. What did this anonymous Muslim author do in this text, which brought it to the attention of Spanish scholars? Well, among his writings, he would place the sonnets of Lope de Vega. <laughs> So you would you would be reading along this extraordinary erotic treatise, and you there would be Lope de Vega, because <laughs> he had memorized the sonnets. It's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's brilliant. Um, eventually, we have to get onto the sad story of the collapse of Muslim Spain. But yeah. before we do that, perhaps you could read um, this marvelous agricultural manual. Oh, I'd, I'd, I'd love uh, to. Where is he rightly saying that the prose of this agricultural instruction, this kind of uh, agricultural calendar verges on poetry. It does. This is, poetry. yeah. This is this is this is agriculture uh, from an agricultural manual during the time of the convivencia, and the agricultural manual goes by months. And so this is um, this is the month of April in the tenth century, the month when rose water, rose oil rose syrup and rose preserves are made. Violets are picked for the making of syrup and oil. Or they are pickled. Syrup is made from the rue herb. There are cucumbers. The palms are artificially pollinated and the palm leaves are cut. The early grapes begin to form. The olive trees blossom and the figs come out. The Valencian falcons hatch out their young ones. It takes 30 days for them to grow their feathers. The fawns are born. Supports are made for the lemon trees and jasmine cuttings are planted in the ground. The wild carrots are ripe and harvested for the making of jam. And then there are poppies, pomegranates, and the leaves and petals of the dyer's weed from which juice is extracted. It is also the month when henna, basil, cauliflower, rice, and beans are sown. The green gourds and the aubergine are dug out 
of their forcing beds, small melons are sown, and also cucumbers, pea fowl, storks, and many other birds lay their eggs and begin to brood. That's lovely. <laughs> I think Such lovely. beautiful stuff. I mean, let's, it just makes you want to go straight outside and start, yeah, yeah. Start, start working in the garden. Yeah. Would you like to choose, before we really do move on, uh, a favorite Arab or Jewish poem? Because this book has got so much poetry in it. And while he's looking, I'll say. Um, in Arabic, uh, prose, particularly stuff like the Arabian Nights, fiction is very, had a very low status until at least the 20th century, if not the 21st. Poetry was the thing. Poetry is almost the only seriously rated literature in Arabic. But I don't know if you're going for Arabic or Jewish. Uh, these, um, these are from both, actually. Um, this is, to, to return to gardens for a minute, this is a, a one line from a, 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 a poem from an Arabic poet. The silence of gardens is speech. And this uh, this is um, this is from a Jewish poet named uh, Abraham Ibn Ezra. A very rueful quatrain: The heavenly spheres and fortune stars veered off course the day I was born. If I were a seller of candles, the sun would never go down. <laughs> and then this is uh, this is from. A longer piece called Advice for a Future King. As long as a man seeks out wisdom, wisdom will have him hold sway over men. But once he thinks it's wearing its mantle, know that it has just been taken from him. You know, it's a, it's, it's a quatrain. The, uh, in the works of Idris Shah, he has a proverb which is almost a one-line version of this, which is, a, a saint is a saint until he knows he is. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> um, well, we ought to move on to the collapse, the, ah. the decay, the ruin. Tell us about 1492 and the years that immediately followed. You know, it's a, it's a story that um, gave me such sorrow to tell. Uh, in 1492, Ferdinand and Isabella starved Granada into submission. And they took over the city based on a document called the Capitulations, which was meant to guarantee uh, Muslims uh, a, a, a their, the right to their property, the right to their faith, the right to their customs, and so forth. Um, and the Capitulations were... It was... The most charitable way I can describe it is as a, a lie of the most remarkable grandeur. Um, they, within three months after they took over Granada, they expelled all the the entirety of the Jewish population from Spain. They flattened the Jewish quarter in Granada, and they began what we would describe today as the ethnic cleansing of the Muslim population. Uh, and, and that went on for many decades until 1609 when there was a final and second expulsion. And what happened as a result of that, you know, everyone, everyone likes to talk about El Siglo de Oro, the century of gold because of the, the gold and 
and silver coming into Spain as a result of the working with slave labor of the mines in the, in the New World. But if you, if you look at the facts, what happened after 1492 is a slow motion but definitive economic and cultural collapse. There's some fundamental way that Fernand and Isabel, despite their the afterglow of their reputation, that they destroyed their country. Mm. Um, and uh, I, in this book, I call them uh, I call them the the exterminating angels yes. of Spain, with from the movie. Uh, I'm a bit kinder to Fernand and Isabella in my book on the Alhambra because I. Because they, they loved the Alhambra, right. as did Charles V, um, mm-hmm. came after them. And they went around in Arab clothes. But they, when they one did. looks at what they actually did, and what they allowed that man, Cisneros, is he? Yeah, Cisneros. 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 Yeah. To, how he was allowed to persecute Muslims. And then, then there's a centuries of stagnation. And then in the early 20th century, there's a great deal of political instability, which mm-hmm. I wouldn't dream of summarizing, which shifts between left and right. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Franco coup. Uh, right. What happens in Albaycin at this point? Well, the, the Albaycin, which, uh, which was the, is, is really the origin of Granada and it was always the heart of Granada. Um, during the time leading up to the Spanish Civil War was a, a place of, a place that supported wholeheartedly the Spanish Republic. That is, the Spanish Republic built schools all over the country. They emphasized culture. Um, they, uh, they were interested in women's rights. They were interested in a, in a much more open culture and one that wasn't dominated in every aspect by the church. Uh, and as a result, just as in the 1500s under, under the, the Christian kings of, of that century, um, the, the Albaycin was subject to the most grotesque attacks and destruction. The Franco actually bombed the Albaycin. Huh. Actually, he actually put artillery on the terraces of the Alhambra mm. and lobbed shells mm. directly into the neighborhood. My impression is that gr- downtown Granada is really rather conservative. It's quite different. I think you're quite right about that. Yeah, there's a dark and gloomy feel to it, much of Granada. Yeah. Like the bit that isn't Albaycin. And, and so, what happened in the years that followed under Franco? How was it? Well, the, the Albaycin, uh, what was true of the Albaycin then, then was true of the Alhambra for many years, as, as you point out in, uh, in your book on the Alhambra. Uh, it was crumbling away. It was, just, it was just dying. And Garcia Lorca, who loved the Albaycin and loved Cotamans. Thank goodness we got to him, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and he... Um, you know, he he never stopped loving it, but he was the he, he gave us the closest descriptions of the disintegration of of the neighborhood. It didn't really begin to recover until 1994. Why then? Because that's when it was declared a World Heritage Site by UNESCO, which freed up all kinds of funds. But now we've got to Lorca. We can't yeah. miss Lorca. No. Uh, would you like to read some Lorca on Albaycin and I, then tell us how? Of Lorca's end. I, I would. I, um, one thing that's key to know about Lorca is related to the, one of the preeminent art forms in, uh, in Granada, which is, which is flamenco singing, which is this cut loose, fierce, transformative, irresistible art form. One of the great 
art form, musical art forms on earth, I think. And uh, Lorca understood that. And in 1922, um, along with the then world-famous composer Manuel de, de Falla, he created the Concurso de Cantejondo, which was a contest of deep song where he would have flamenco singers come in from the country, come in from the taverns, and they would have, they would have a singing contest in the Albaicín. So many people were fascinated by this prospect that they had to move it to the terrace of the Alhambra. And so there were 4,000 people there. Some of these flamenco singers walked 60 miles to be in this contest. And, uh, and Lorca was such a defender of flamenco. And this, this contest was a sensation in Granada, in Spain, and in the press throughout Europe. It, it reintroduced Cantejondo, Deep Song. What is Deep Song? Deep Song is, is, is flamenco singing. Some, sometimes with the, the accompaniment of guitar, but often just, just a person alone singing. It's, it's this, it's this deep, uh, this deep expression, heart and soul, uh, by a singer that, uh, that when it in the ideal creates a unity between audience and singer, um, which is summed up in a, in a term that Lorca used called the duende. Yes, which can, can be translated as elf. But, um... Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so what is it? Duende, duende is many things. Lorca wrote a whole essay on duende in which he, he tried to basically reorganize the aesthetics of the entire Western world. Um, and it's, Duende is a spirit of poetry. It's a spirit of unity. Um, it's a, uh, it's a shared rapture and understanding that happens, um, at great moments in flamenco singing. Lucy and Gabrielle and I have been at, at, uh, at flamenco performances and literally a current of feeling runs through the room and the hair stands up on the back of your neck. And the first time it happened, I heard whisperings in the room, duende, it's a duende. It's, a, it's an extraordinary thing. Um, I would love to read a couple passages about flamenco from Lorca, if I may. Lorca gave his, his first public lecture and his first poetry reading during the Concurso de Cantejondo. And, 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 and there's a, something extraordinary about this too. Accompanying him on his first poetry reading was a young guitarist, Andre Segovia, <laughs> of, all, of all people. But this is, this is Lorca in 1922, age 24, talking about flamenco to, uh, to an audience that knew little of it. He says, we must cry out in defense of these pure and truthful songs. And then he, he's trying to tell them what flamenco is. He says, it is deep, truly deep, deeper than any well deeper than the seas of the world, deeper even than the hearts of those that create it presently and the voices of those who sing it, because it is almost infinite. It comes from a faraway people crossing beyond the cemetery of the years. It comes from the first tear and the first kiss. It is the song of night. It has nothing but night, deep night shot through with stars. Yeah. 
I mean, only who could write that except for Garcia Lorca? And um, what happened to him? You know, it's uh, I, one thing I say in the book is that not Aeschylus, not Sophocles, not Euripides could have written a tragedy so perfect as the story of Garcia Lorca's end. He um, he recognized the accomplishments and the beauty of Al Andalus. Um, he said so publicly, which enraged the the uh, the, the conservatives in Granada. Um, he was completely a Granadino. He was really he he was devoted he was devoted heart and soul to Granada as a city and to um, to the artistic heritage um, of Granada. Yeah, you you you, you mentioned he was very keen on Arab poetry. Yeah, he could, he couldn't read Arabic though, could he? No, he couldn't. But in translation, yeah. he understood that one of the sources of flamenco. He he thought one of the sources of flamenco was, were were um, were Sufi the Sufi poets Hafiz and Omar Khayyam. So he he had, he had a he had a very acute sense of the the historical context. Um, but when. When the Civil War started, he was in Madrid. He was with Pablo Neruda. And he went to, to Neruda's house, and Neruda said, whatever you do, don't go to Granada. There were other people there that said, don't go to Granada. So Lorca gets on a train the next day, and he goes to Granada, because that's where his family is. He's in the family house there, and these thugs, these right-wing thugs are coming out to rough up people who work for Lorca's family. And... And he sees this happening, and he had conservative friends in in Granada who said, we can get you across the lines to safe Republican territory. You know, we can guide you through. And Lorca said, you know, I just, I don't want to abandon Granada. I want to stay here. And so he stayed, and he had a number of opportunities um, to escape. There were many people who were trying to rescue him and to make sure he was safe. Eventually, he took refuge in the house of some conservative friends in Granada, near the police station, near the military command center. There he was arrested. He was held for um, a night and a day, and then they took him up into the mountains, and uh, about five in the morning, late in August, in 1936, they shot him to death. Yeah, I mean, your book is exhilarating, uh, and yet so much of it is about two grand tragedies, the 1492 yeah. and then the, 19, the Civil War that breaks out in 1936. Mm-hmm. Um, one penultimate grump I'm going to make, cool. uh, which is um, you describe walking in Albaycin as like flying. Um, <laughs> If you're 68, you've got rheumatic knees and had a knee <laughs> operation. It's not like flying at all, being no, no. warned. It's really knackering. Um, finally, um, what are you writing now? What will the next book be? You know, I, uh, I'm working on a book um, of very short stories, uh, you know, one, one to five pages. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I must say that the spirit of this book that I have in hand now comes from from the book on Granada. And the reason why is because we we came to such a we came into such a spirit of hopefulness because of our time in Granada. And the reason but despite those tragedies which are 
such dark and bitter tragedies, despite those, you have the Albaicin, which is, I think, one of the most extraordinary places in the world to live, so full of life, so there's such a current of history and such a cumulative beauty to the place. And what I came to think is that if if the Albaicin can survive and be such a life-giving, gift-giving, grace-giving place, then any good thing is possible. Any good thing is possible. On that note, uh, <laughs> we'll open it up to the audience for any questions or comments. I've got several, actually. I don't know whether to start with it. I will just ask one, but I don't know whether to ask a serious one or a frivolous one. Which one would you prefer? <laughs> both. I'll take both. Okay. Well, all right, then. Uh, my, um, my serious one is, I, I wonder, I, do you, it was so interesting hearing you talk about deep song, uh-huh. and I wondered what you could say about that tradition today, uh, whether it's thriving, and also fascinating about the roots in, in the poems of Hafiz and, 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 and other Sufi few poets do you think the deep song retains any of the instrumental i I mean in terms of the um the purpose of of original sufi sufi tradition nowadays huh um i'll i'll take those in turn the the as to the presence of of flamenco right now in granada i think it's an extraordinary force um, Lucy and Gabriella and I were at the Alhambra three nights ago for a performance uh, by a man named Juan Habichuela El Nieto, um, who is a flamenco guitarist. And it was all an exaltation. The, the level of skill is so high in flamenco, both in singing and in guitar. So if you seek out flamenco puro, the, the, the best of it, um, it's, you can find it. With regard to the, the poetic heart of flamenco, um, I think it is, it is always present. And the, the reason why, what, what's generally not realized with flamenco singing, because of the way flamenco singing is done, is that they're singing poetry. It's actually sung poetry. And it has roots in, in Christian liturgical singing. It has roots in the chanting of the Koran. And it has roots in Jewish liturgy as well. And so it's this, it's this confluence of, of poetry and the use of voice to bring people together in a sacred place. It's unlike any other experience in my life in terms of having, being in the presence of a living art with roots in history that deep. It's still so alive. Thank you. I was wondering whether you can give us some information about the cultural background of the Moors who went to and they created Andalusia. Because at the time, it was the Muslim Empire. It was the Ottoman Empire was right. there. And so it was the time of the glories of Muslim Empire. Right. So. Well, that, that's, that's an interesting question. It was, it was very complex um, because the... Um, I'm hard put to call it an invasion in 7-Eleven. I mean, it, it was a military incursion, but... It was the, 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 uh, 
the coming of the Iberian Peninsula under to be under Islamic administration after 711, it was within three years, the entire peninsula. It was uh, more than a uh, conquest. I would call it a, a kind of a cakewalk. Um, and, but they were Berbers. They were Muslim Berbers. There was a group of Syrians that, that came later. There were um, people, there were Muslims from various parts of North Africa. But they were a, a very small part of the population very small and um, it was so it was truly a convivencia that is there were millions of, of Christians and there was a strong Jewish population um, and yet there was uh, an Islamic administration from early on that functioned very well and part of the genius of it is that um, there they had a policy of no forced conversions. No one was forced to become a Muslim. And so there was, there was, and of course there was the teaching of Muhammad to respect other people of a book. So there was a, some, in that epic, there was a fundamental respect um, based upon the teaching of, of, of the, the founder of Islam for people of other faiths. And of course, Jesus and and Abraham are are key figures in the Quran. Yes, that's right. And but that those were important uh, among the founding the the the, uh, the founding principles of the convivencia. If I could say something here, um, that with respect to the invasion, a few hundred, a few thousand people crossed over from Gibraltar and. There's a Spanish scholar who produced a book which I, I won't attempt to reproduce the Spanish title, but in French it was Les Arabes n'ont jamais envahi l'Espagne. Uh, the Arabs never invaded Spain, which argues that, um, in, that it's more a matter of mass conversions. Most of Spain was Aryan Christian in faith, mm-hmm. and Aryan Christians don't actually believe in the divinity of Jesus. So it's much right. easier for them to slip over to becoming Muslims, and so that's the kind <laughs> of argument going on there. Uh, the other thing to say about this is when people discovered the Alhambra in the 19th century, they thought, wow, this is splendid, this is magnificent, this, this is the center of Muslim culture. And, and it looks very good. But the sad truth is it was a sort of kind of after-echo, a, a nostalgic attempt to rebuild the glories which had been lost in, at Cordoba, the right. Medina of Zahra, and Toledo, and elsewhere. And those palaces in turn, uh, the great palaces in Cordoba, were attempts to rebuild the glories that the Umayyads had lost in Baghdad and places further to the east. It's all a kind of... This is is probably a bit of a mischievous and difficult question to answer. I think we're we're all convinced here of the benefits of convivencia. Right. If you were given an opportunity to speak to representatives of ISIL, who advocate a very different kind of caliphate, Uh do you think you could persuade them of the benefits? Well... The, the interesting thing about, about that phenomenon is that just as um, Ferdinand and Isabel tried to erase the culture of, of the convivencia of, of Al-Andalus and this, uh, this, this really a confluence of genius that took, took place there, um, 
if, if you look at the actual language of extreme groups like ISIS, they're trying to do the same thing. That is, when they refer to the caliphate, it's clear that they're referring to some kind of, of fierce and fundamentalist idea of that period in Spain, in the history of Spain. And that didn't exist. <laughs> that, that never happened. And the, the, for, for, to, 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 to draw out that analogy a little bit, Ferdinand and Isabel had this idea that Spain was always essentially Christian. And it just took 800 years for it to, to do the Reconquista. Well, that's, it's, that's a completely fraudulent history. I mean, there, the Convivencia was a reality. And neither Isis nor Ferdinand and Isabel can erase those 800 years of human achievement. Any more questions? Yeah. I think, um, however dreadful Ferdinand and Isabella are, were, and I agree with you, because whenever I go to Cordoba and I see they've completely ruined the beautiful yeah. mosque with did. all of that ornate gold and stuff, Right. At least the buildings are still standing. I yeah. think with ISIS, we might actually see the demolition of the Alhambra. It's uh, it's it's possible. I mean, they they uh, it is you know as you pointed out earlier, there there was uh, in some fundamental way the culture of the convivencia was something that both Ferdinand and Isabel understood was a very rich one. They still wanted to erase it. But for a while, they loved going swishing around in those Arab robes. They said, and, and Charles V, when he walked into Cordoba and saw what had been done to that mosque, yeah. who has done That's this? A great story, <laughs> exactly. And, and the strange thing is about the Alhambra, we have it today. It is the only substantially surviving Muslim palace anywhere in the world. It is extraordinary that the one palace to survive survived under somewhat negligent Christian protection. That that is I, I, that is a wonderful story about uh, about his reaction to the church in the middle of uh, of the uh, the mosque in, in Cordoba. He was appalled. <laughs> Stephen, thank you very much. What a treat! Uh, Great. Please hang around, have another glass of wine, uh, buy copies of this marvelous book, uh, <laughs> and yes, stick about. Doubtless, um, Stephen and Robert are perfectly happy to to sign things. Uh, Thank you very much, both of you, and good evening. Great. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.